Welcome everyone to another edition of Fair Territory. Big week ahead in baseball, and it's a big week no matter what happens with the Boris Four. I'm talking about Blake Snell and Jordan Montgomery and Matt Chapman and Cody Bellinger. If those guys don't sign this week, we're still going to have a lot of news. And we are still going to have a lot of news because, folks, it's Hall of Fame week. The announcement tomorrow, Tuesday, and it's going to be an exciting time to see, as it always is, which players are elected this year, which players are going to Cooperstown. Now, I want to bring your attention to the latest Hall of Fame tracker by Ryan Thibodeau and his great team, the work that these guys do on X and Twitter is just kind of amazing, keeping track of all of the public ballots. Now, it's not a complete indication of what is going to happen. As Ryan will tell you, as we've learned over the years, the public ballots generally are more favorable to the players than the final results. So you'll see these percentages, and most likely in every case, they will drop when the actual announcement is made. Now, 75% necessary for induction. You can see right here, if you're watching on YouTube, Adrian Beltre at 99%, Maurer at 82.9%, Helton at 82.4%, Billy Wagner at 78.2%, all over the line right now. Obviously, some of those numbers will drop, and Wagner is right on the edge. Gary Sheffield at 74.6%, also right on the edge. If his number drops in his last year on the ballot, he's not getting in. And that is... Obviously, where this thing stands right now, Andrew Jones, Carlos Beltran, obviously getting great support as well. My ballot, I'll repeat it for those who might have missed it. It's Beltre, it's Maurer, Helton, Wagner, Sheffield, Jones, Beltran, Utley, Jimmy Rollins, and I believe that was it. Nine guys this year. You can vote for up to ten. I voted for nine. Obviously, I'm a big Hall advocate. And yes, some people will say, Come on, man. Only the elite. Only the very best. But I've said this before. Once you have the ballot in your hands, it's a little bit harder to be that exclusive. And there's another reason why, at this point, I believe we need to elect more Hall of Famers. And you can see by what I'm about to show you that there has been a trend in the last few years that has not been healthy in terms of the Baseball Writers Association of America election. The trend has gone toward a smaller hall, if anything. Look at this. From 2014 to 19, 20 Hall of Famers in six years. 20. That's an average of over three a year. From 2020 to 23, the last four years, only four. Four Hall of Famers in four years. Derek Jeter, Larry Walker, David Ortiz, and Scott Rowland. Now, as Jason Stark wrote last week in The Athletic, in his Hall of Fame column, the one where he listed who he is voting for, and explained everything in great detail, as he always does. It's always so fascinating to read Jason on the Hall of Fame. He made a point that really resonated with me, and it speaks to this conversation. The point Jason made is that the magic numbers we often associate with the Hall of Fame, 3,000 hits, 500 wins for a pitcher, 500 home runs for a hitter, those are becoming more difficult to attain. And those were the numbers that we usually looked at as automatic. And it's a different era, a different time. What Jason's point was, is that as the sport evolves, we as voters, voting members of the BBWAA, have to evolve with it. And if you read today, I've got a round table with Peter Gammons and Jason Stark in The Athletic, and we discuss some of these trends and some of the things going on. And we talk about how certain candidates 
have to be viewed differently than in the past. Guys like Utley, David Wright, Dustin Pedroia, who's coming up on the ballot next year, Felix Hernandez coming up on the ballot next year. I'm not saying they're all Hall of Famers, but Jason argues to consider peak, even if the peak is short, what that player was in that period of time, to consider impact on winning, and to consider whether that player for a period was considered elite at his position. To me, these were all valid arguments. And again, I want to see more people elected. Travis Sawchick, Mike Petrello, they've written about how when you compare the decades and the number of Hall of Famers elected per decade, we're lagging in recent decades. That needs to change. So I want to see four guys elected tomorrow. I'm talking about Beltrake, Maurer, Helton, and Wagner. Ideally five, Sheffield too. But I'm hoping for a big class, a big class of 2024. And my guess is we're going to see it. I would think Beltray and Maurer for sure, and Helton and Wagner, maybe somewhat on the bubble, but at least one of those guys gets in. All right, that's the Hall of Fame. Now, as we move on to the biggest story in baseball last week, well, that was obvious. The signing of Josh Hader by the Astros to a five-year, $95 million free agent contract. Kind of a stunning signing. A lot of people were wondering, would Hader beat Edwin Diaz's five-year, $102 million extension with the Mets? He actually did in present-day value, if not total value. Diaz had deferrals at his deal, lowered it to $93 million in present-day value. Hader obviously beats that. But enough about the money, because what's really interesting here are the Astros and Jim Crane and what he's doing. This contract for Crane, the owner, is a departure. He had never given that much money to a free agent before. He is also on track now to cross the luxury tax threshold, something he has done only once since becoming owner in November 2011, and that was in the 2020 shortened season. So Crane is doing some things a little bit differently, and you might ask why. Now, he's given $100 million extensions before, Altuve and Bregman, Alvarez, but free agency, no, he hasn't done that. What I think is going on here is that Jim Crane sees the Astros' competitive window is starting to close. Now, they've lost big free agents before, Correa and Springer, but they're facing now a real series of losses that could affect them starting this offseason, or I should say next offseason. Let's take a look at where the Astros stand with regard to where some of their players are in the free agent process. All right, after 2024, Altuve and Bregman are free agents. Ryan Presley, if he fails to make 50 appearances, which is doubtful based on his recent performance, I believe he has 50 or more his last four full seasons, that option kicks in if he gets to 50. If he doesn't, then he's a free agent. Justin Verlander, similar thing, pitches fewer than 140 innings. He's a free agent. So it's possible that after 2024, Presley and Verlander will be gone. And then after 2025... Abreu, Kyle Tucker, and Framer Valdez are all free agents. Now, of that group, everyone in the industry expects Altuve to re-sign and be a lifetime Astro. Bregman, not so certain. And then the others, you just don't know how it's all going to play out. So the Astros are not necessarily at a crossroads this season. This is not necessarily a last hurrah. But it has a little bit of that look. And Crane obviously wanted to reinforce his bullpen. That was the idea behind signing Josh Hader. Now, 
If Crane was going to go out of his comfort zone, you can argue maybe he should have done it in another way. Maybe he should have signed Blake Snell, high-dollar, short-term deal. Maybe he should have signed, I don't know, Hector Neris, Robert Stevenson, and some other reliever for less money than he had to give Hayter. I don't know that this is the best allocation of resources. But there's one other thing here. There's one other element, and this, to me, might be part of Jim Crane's motivation. We have not heard from him yet. They have not held the press conference. And I don't know if this was part of it or not. But remember back at the 2015 deadline, the Astros had Josh Hader. The Astros traded Josh Hader along with Domingo Santana, Brett Phillips, Adrian Hauser, and they got back Carlos Gomez and Mike Fires. Trade was not a good trade for the Astros, obviously. Gomez was released more than a year later. Fires had his moments for the Astros, obviously was the whistleblower in the end. I don't know that you figure that into the trade equation necessarily. And the guys they traded, outside of Hayter, they haven't had a huge impact. Phillips had a little bit of a good run in 2021 with the Rays. Santana had a little bit of a run with the Brewers. He's been in Japan the last three years. And Hauser, kind of an average major league pitcher. Not players who have no value. They've been contributors to their teams, but not stars. Hader, a star. Hader has been the dominant reliever in the league for quite some time now. National League reliever of the year twice. And I would imagine Jim Crane as owner has thought, man, we never should have traded that guy. And in fact, as Chandler Rome of The Athletic has reported, Jim Crane tried to get Josh Hader back, along with Blake Snell, last year. He tried to make a deal with the Padres, the Astros did, to get both those pitchers. Crane didn't name them, but he said they were in on a starter and a reliever from the Padres. We can all put two and two together. There are times in the industry when owners, when executives, when scouts fixate on a player. Maybe it's a player they couldn't get in the draft. Maybe it's a player they've coveted all these years. Maybe it's a player they've traded away. It seems to me Josh Hader might have been one of those players for Jim Crane. Time now for the inside dish. This is the part of the show where I talk maybe about a story I've written, maybe about a trend in the game, or maybe really this week for the first time, the state of the industry I'm in. Because last week was quite disturbing for any of us really who work in any form of media, in journalistic type media particularly. Every so often, I'll get an email or a letter from a young person saying, Ken, I'd like to get into the business. What advice can you give me? And I always respond, or almost always, I should say. And often, too often of late, I don't know what to tell that person. I don't know what advice to give. Now, doing what I do, this was always my dream. Not exactly this. Originally, it was just print. Back when I started, there was not even ESPN, really. There was not talk radio. It was a print world. And I wanted to be a beat writer for a major newspaper. Could be any sport. Any of the big four major professional sports, college basketball, college football. It didn't matter to me. Jason Stark, Tyler Kepner, some of my colleagues, they only wanted to be baseball writers. To me, I just fell into baseball. That was my first big job. So I entered the business in 1984. I went to the York Daily Record in York, Pennsylvania, as naive as you could be. My father was worried that I wasn't going to be able to make a living doing this. 
and he kept telling me, well, maybe one day you'll go into television and everything will be better. And I kept saying, Dad, I'm not going into TV. At that time, television in sports was only the three-minute report on the nightly local news. That was it. You'd be reading off a teleprompter. I, that was not my idea of what I wanted to do. But my dad had legitimate concerns at the time, and I ignored them like a lot of young people ignore their parents when they want to pursue what they want to do. Now, back then, it was difficult to move up, but it wasn't impossible. And I eventually moved. I spent a year in York, two years in South Jersey, then I went to Baltimore, was there for many years, and now I do what I do. That path, the one that I took, that doesn't really exist anymore. If you can get to that small paper, well, good luck, because most of them don't exist. And even if you get there, good luck getting out, because the next step might not be easy to take. So it's really difficult to do it the way I did it. And I recognize that, and it's tough to advise young people when it's a different world. So where are we, at least in print? Well, where we are was driven home quite clearly last week. And I want to show you some things that occurred. This is by no means a complete list. Let's start with Sports Illustrated. That's the big one. That's the one that really jarred all of us the most. Sports Illustrated was the dream for so many of us when we were coming up. I didn't dream of it because I didn't think it was possible for me. You see here the statement from the Sports Illustrated Union and the News Guild of New York. And it says, earlier today, this is from last week, the workers of Sports Illustrated were notified that the arena group is planning to lay off a significant number, possibly all, of the guild-represented workers at SI, a result of Authentic Brands Group revoking arena's license to publish SI. If you haven't followed this story, Authentic Brands owns SI. Arena is a licensing company that licensed SI, and they didn't make a payment to Authentic Brands, and that's what prompted all of this. An awful set of circumstances. I know SI has been in decline for several years, at least compared to what it once was, but it is still, still a home of so many great journalists, photographers, not so much anymore, but writers for sure. All right, let's move on. This is all in one week, folks. The LA Times, that was next. LA Times, their guild had a one-day walkout. You see this post on X? After just one day of organizing, about 90% of our union walked out today in protest of management's devastating layoffs proposal and multiple unfair labor practices. We are so thankful for the solidarity shown to us during this historic work stoppage. The LA Times, one of the great newspapers in our country, they're going through this. And now, the one that really hit home for me because it's my old employer, the Baltimore Sun. The Baltimore Sun was sold last week, and it was sold to a guy who owns the local Sinclair affiliate in Baltimore, Fox 45. It used to be. Maybe it's just 45 now, Channel 45. And he met with the employees, the new owner did, and it did not go well. Let's show you a post on X about that. It's a statement from the Baltimore Sun Guild. During yesterday's meeting at the Baltimore Sun, new owner David Smith shared his vision for the paper, which he admitted he has rarely read. The editorial direction that he described, focused on clicks rather than journalistic value, concerned many of our members, as did his attitude toward vulnerable communities in the city that we love. I want to show you another post on X from the competing Baltimore banner. This is a paper owned 
by a person who considers it a nonprofit, the Baltimore Banner. Anyway, they got the new Baltimore Sun owner on tape bashing city schools, local politicians, and more comments were racially charged. Not good. This is my old paper. This is where really I learned to do the job for the longest period of time before I went to Fox and the Sporting News before that. I consider the Baltimore Sun really a place where I owe a lot to. We were, during the 90s when I was there, a force. We had some amazing people. David Simon, most prominent among them. Laura Lippman became a novelist. I can go down the line. Mark Hyman, now the head of the sports journalism program at the University of Maryland. Mike Litwin, a great columnist. Again, I could go on and on and on. So that one hurts. And when I talk about Sports Illustrated and the LA Times and the Baltimore Sun, again, this is just a partial list. Ezra Klein in the New York Times, he had a commentary about Pitchfork, a music criticism site that sort of met its demise last week. And he listed a lot more media outlets that have undergone similar things. Now, I'm not here to say, let's bring back the old days. Man, I miss the old days. No, 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 no. Time passes. Things change. Industries evolve. And in many ways, the newspaper industry did not evolve well once the Internet started, once the Internet era began. That is on newspapers to some degree. To some degree, maybe all of this was inevitable. But back to the original question. What do I tell a young person who wants to do this for a living, who wants to get into print? I'm consistently at a loss. And I'm not just at a loss for that age group. I don't even know what to say to my peers who are maybe in their 30s about the future of the industry. Where this is going, I don't know. It certainly doesn't look like it's going to a good place. Now, I never want to discourage anyone. And I never want to be that guy. It happened to me. When I was coming out of college, I was an intern at Newsday on Long Island. And the editor there told me, you maybe should go to law school. What he was saying was, you're not good enough. Now, maybe he thought that because this intern from two years before was going to be one of the great sports writers of all time, Tom Verducci. And I don't know that I compared Tom Verducci back then. In fact, I know I did not. So maybe that was what was driving that conversation. Okay, I get it. But I never forgot that. It stayed with me. I don't believe you should ever, ever discourage a young person from doing what he or she wants to do. And I swore I would never do that. But what I say to young people is that you have to be practical. You have to be aware of where this all is right now. You have to be willing to work in different mediums. You have to be willing to maybe move around. You have to be willing, of course, to work hard. But even that advice rings hollow if you can't get a job, right? So this whole thing, it saddens me to no end. I am a believer in what we do. I am a believer in journalism. I believe even over here in the sports department, the toy department, as some people often call it, that what we do, it kind of matters. I believe in the whole phrase, comfort the afflicted, afflict the comfortable. Now, this is sports. It's not anything that serious. But there is, in my view, a certain standard we should meet in holding people accountable. And we do that at The Athletic. We try to, anyway. If you look at my column on the Marlins today, it's kind of along those lines. It's just a column. But 
it's basically asking the question, what the heck is going on with this team? Those questions need to be asked. The ultimate example of this, at least at The Athletic, was the sign-stealing story. Without that story, baseball doesn't investigate, and that was a turning point for the game in terms of what was going on at the time illegally with the Astros and with other teams to a lesser extent. So yes, I'm a believer, and at this moment in the industry, there's too little of holding people accountable. There's too much team-owned media, too much league-owned media, too much compromised media, and it hurts. So again, back to the original question, what do I tell that young person? I tell that person to be realistic, but I also say, hey, the landscape is rather bleak. And I say, you've gotta be willing to work really hard You've got to be willing to seize any opportunity in any medium. You have to keep your eyes open at all times and be aware of where you are. And that at the same time, it might not be easy and it might not happen at all. But I'm not going to discourage that person, not even now. We need the believers, the young kids coming out of college who want to do this. We need the idealists. We need the dreamers. We need people who want to enter journalism for all the right reasons. I would argue, even as bleak as things are now, we need them more than ever before. Time now for Dude and Dork of the Week. I would say the dude is pretty obvious. We talked about him in the first segment. His name is Josh Hader, and he signed a big-time contract last week, one that he has earned by his performance over the years. I know people say relievers are a gamble, and they are a gamble, even Josh Hader is a gamble. Walk rate was up last year. His velo has fluctuated at times. There are some things you look at his performance and maybe you're concerned. It's hard for a guy like that to sustain it over a long period. But he went through some difficult years in arbitration with the Brewers. It's some pretty big time fights with them in arbitration. They used him hard early in his career and he became somewhat Sensitive about that, I would say. I was going to say resentful, but sensitive would be the better phrase. And that's what led to him maybe being more of a one-inning guy. You can debate whether he should take the ball more or take it in the eighth inning and be available for multi-inning saves. And maybe he will be now that he has gotten paid. But he's had a lot of success doing it his way. And certainly, anytime a player gets rewarded, if I'm a fan, I'm happy for that player. Because you know what? These guys work hard. They have short careers. They're the best at what they do. And you heard all this talk earlier about Josh Hader. Eh, maybe he's not going to get it. Teams are worried about him. He's going to get a short term. No, 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 no. He got paid because he deserved to get paid. Josh Hader, dude of the week. Dork of the week. This is a complicated dork of the week. And I want to start off by showing you something Anthony Rendon said in a podcast that attracted a lot of attention. Let's start here and then I'll get to who the dork of the week is in this particular situation. If you could change one thing about Major League Baseball, if I gave you that power, what would you do? <laughs> I'm going to say something very lighthearted so I don't get in trouble when I get yes. to spring training. Uh, so I'm going to give you all an Anthony Rendon answer. Um, <laughs> the first of the day, hopefully. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, we got to shorten the season, man. It's too many dang games. 162 games in 185, three days, whatever it is. Man, no. <laughs> we got to shorten this bad boy up. Let's go. <laughs> All right, that's what Rendon said. You can see how he said it. Now, Jared Carabas tweeted, nobody hates baseball more than one of the game's highest paid players who gets paid not to play. 
Jonathan Papelbon followed that by saying, I can definitely confirm Carabas here. Played with Rendon. Literally hates baseball. Yeah, it's long. Isn't that what you signed up for? Just tell the team you want to play half the season and give back half your salary. Okay. Jared, I get it. Papelbon, I get it. If you want to rip Anthony Rendon for his lack of availability over the last few years, uh, okay, that's not unreasonable. Now, I always hate questioning players for being injured, but Rendon has raised questions of his own with some of his comments and all that. I just don't believe that in this case, the reaction by Jared and even Papa Obama was warranted, and all of us who overreacted to this. He said, Anthony did, that he was being lighthearted. He said it almost as if he knew he was going to get in trouble, knowing of his reputation. I don't think he deserved what he got back, the blowback. So dork of the week is not necessarily Anthony Rendon. It's not. It's everyone who overreacted. And I'm not even ripping Jared and Papelbon. They're entitled to their opinions, of course. And Rendon has certainly opened the door for such opinions. All I'm saying here is that for this particular comment, the way it was said, eh, I wouldn't have ripped him. I don't think he deserved that. Time now for Grilling Ken. Let's get to your questions. First question comes from Jason Burke at by Jason B. Jason asks a very pertinent question. If the A's end up playing in a minor league facility for three seasons, would they be able to attract any free agents before they land in Las Vegas? Well, that is a very good question. And I think we would start with will the A's even be interested in signing free agents because it's not something that they really do in their present existence. I wrote about the Marlins on Monday and I mentioned that the A's have signed two free agents. They gave them a combined $2.25 million. Trevor Gott and Osvaldo Beto, those are their major league free agents, $2.25 million combined. Now, is anybody going to want to play for them in Sacramento or in Las Vegas or some other minor league park? From 2025 to 2027, I would suggest the answer is no. And I would also suggest the A's don't care because they're not going to be in that market. What is so troubling to me about this, and I went back last night and looked at all the relocations. I could not find one, not one, that was even remotely similar to what the game is about to experience here. Three seasons of being in a place that is either minor league or not in the market you're going to. When the Nationals moved to D.C., they played in RFK Stadium for three years before moving to Nationals Park. Okay, RFK Stadium was in Washington, D.C. If the A's are in Sacramento or in Las Vegas or even in San Francisco, what is that? And again, it goes to the question, why did baseball allow John Fisher to embark on this course? And I understand baseball's position and Fisher's position that it just wasn't tenable in Oakland. But this, Vegas itself is a question on whether the team can succeed there. And then you're basically taking four years, not just three. This year in Oakland, which is a waste. And then the next three, who knows where they're going to be. It's going to be John Fisher's traveling no stars. What is this? What are we doing here? That's my question. All right, now on to the next one from the listeners and viewers. This comes from Tim Kaufman. Tim asks, any splashes for the Phillies? Could Trout be in play? I don't expect Trout goes anywhere. The Angels have basically said they're not trading him. In fact, Trout has a full no-trade clause. This is not happening, at least not yet. 
He also needs to show he can stay healthy before a team would even really be that interested in him, in my opinion, at his present salary. Now, if the Angels kicked in money, different story, but we're talking about something that is not even relevant. What I expect from the Phillies going forward is an extension for Zach Wheeler. That is something that they have signaled they want to do. I would think it would happen during spring training. That's when the extensions usually do happen. Zach Wheeler has had a great run for them, and they want it to continue. Prior to that, one more piece perhaps, maybe a reliever. They've been talking to different relievers, thinking about different relievers, and I would think, while it might not be a splash, that is something that they want to do. All right, on to our final question of this show. It comes from Cubs in Bowling. I like this, Cubs and Bowling together. Where's Kershaw going? Well, he's not going to the Cubs, I can tell you that. It seems that Kershaw is down to the Rangers and Dodgers, the two teams that have been involved from the very beginning of this, the two teams that remain involved. He has not made a decision yet. Those teams maybe have not put their best foot forward yet for him. Remember, he is in a very questionable position. Might probably won't be available until after the All-Star break, coming off his shoulder issue. And the real issue here is, will he be willing to leave Los Angeles to go home to Dallas? He's from the Dallas area. He still lives there. He obviously has an affection for that region. The Rangers are in an interesting spot, right? They have these RSN questions surrounding them. Their owners have not been particularly fervent about signing players. Jordan Montgomery would be the first one they sign. They also have a number of pitchers who are out until the same time Kershaw is out until. DeGrom, Scherzer, Tyler Molly. And I've written about this. If they sign Kershaw, even if they don't, they could effectively have a line change at the All-Star break, bring in three-fifths, four-fifths of a new rotation. So the Rangers want Kershaw. I believe that. But it's a matter of working out a deal, getting ownership approval, and it's a matter of whether Kershaw ultimately is willing to change teams. The Dodgers are sitting there. The Dodgers would certainly want Clayton Kershaw back, have him finish his career with them. I would imagine Kershaw, some part of him, wants to be a one-team guy. But I don't know how this is going to resolve. And we'll see it resolve in the coming weeks. And really, bottom line, hopefully we see Clayton Kershaw being Clayton Kershaw again. Thanks to everyone for watching. Thanks to everyone for listening. You know where to find us. YouTube, Apple, Spotify. Like, subscribe. Do whatever it is you want to do. Just keep watching and listening. We'll talk to everyone next week, a week from today. We'll review the Hall of Fame vote. We'll also probably have some fun with the BBWAA dinner in New York, which takes place on Saturday. There's usually some news or fun stuff coming out of that. Have a great week, everyone. We've got a new offer for the FT fam with the same bonus code FOUL, F-O-U-L. Bet $5, get $158 instantly. Place your first BetMGM Sportsbook wager through the BetMGM Sportsbook app of at least $5, and you'll receive $158 instantly in additional winnings regardless of your wager's outcome. Download the BetMGM Sportsbook app, sign up and deposit at least $5 into your newly created account, Place a wager in the amount of at least $5 at standard odds price. And once you've placed a bet, you'll receive $158 in bonus bets, regardless of the outcome of your wager. Again, that's bonus code FOUL, F-O-U-L. Gambling problem or concern? Call 1-800-GAMBLER.